Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome for a second podcast Tim Smith, the chief executive of the Food Standards Agency in the United Kingdom. Uh, Tim, working out of London, uh, coordinates activities for an agency much like the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. And we're going to talk today about children's food marketing. Tim, welcome. Good morning, Kevin. I'm delighted that you're here, especially discussing this issue of food marketing to children. It's a highly controversial issue in the U.S. and around the world. And uh, in my belief, the U.K., through the Food Standards Agency, has taken the lead and been very progressive on this. Um, could you explain what the Food Standards Agency has done regarding food marketing? Well, we're an advisor to government in respect of uh, this particular issue. And government had asked us to contemplate whether it were possible to define in a scientific and evidence-based way a profile for the advertisers so that the advertising standards authorities in the United Kingdom could give a green light or a red light to TV advertising for, for certain products. To children. That, to children specifically. Right. And what that meant was that our nutritional experts went away, consulted their own expert field in academia and in the manufacturing sector, and came back with a profile, a, a simple map, beyond which if a, if a product contained more than a certain amount of those ingredients, it should not be advertised to, to children on TV uh, during certain daytime hours. So first thing to do, nutrient profile. Second thing is measure the product against that. And some key products then were, were uh, I suppose that the popular word would banned from advertising to kids during those hours. Now the nutrient profile that you've used, uh, we're quite familiar with it because we use it ourselves for, for some of our own work, developed I think in large part by Mike Rayner at yes. Oxford University. Could you explain how that works and what goes into the profile system? What yeah, sort of things are considered? It's not a straightforward uh, binary system of yes or no. It, it takes into account the beneficial aspects of nutrients as well as those that we might feel are harmful to children's health. So in very simple, crude terms, it gives negative scores for uh, high extrinsic sugars, it gives negative scores for fats and salts, but rewards those, those manufacturers who are putting fiber and basic starches into the, into the food stuff. Um, I think if a, a lay person was to look at it, it would be somewhat baffling. It's somewhat baffling to me as a non-nutritionist, but the result you get feels right. So if you look at the, the more sugary, high kind of energy dense uh, cereals that are typically marketed to kids then a lot of those don't make it and that makes me feel good that's exactly what we're about it's an enormously complicated task when you get down to the mathematics of it rating these sort of products because yeah. you know how is is one increased gram of fiber worth one decreased gram of saturated fat it's very interesting and thank goodness the scientists have really gotten in and done the hard work on this so there is a good system where you can put all these different parts of a product in, the nutrient parts, and out emerges a single score. Yeah. And that's what you use. It, it has. And I think that the, the careful thing uh, that we, we say a lot is that this profile was developed specifically for this task. And we found ourselves having to police the ownership of the profile and not allowing local authorities in the United Kingdom to use it for, for methods that were not intended We've got a, a big uh, commission who just recently looked at the nutrient profiling model 
and looked at various profiling models around Europe. And I think one of the things that we'd all find useful, and the scientists may well not be able to do this, but we're going to ask them to anyway, is to think about a single nutrient profile that allows us all to understand kind of on a, we have an eat well plate, which describes the components of a typical diet and, and gives people sound advice. Turning that into a profile, which again, we could use to, uh, to, to influence our policy making on advertising to children would be really quite useful. But this is a first and a very straightforward step and one that Europe has been very interested in too. So to place this in context, um, and you may be only able to estimate this, but say with, sh- with cereals that had previously been advertised to children in the UK, you know, say the top 10 or 15 or 20, what percentage of those might have been excluded from advertising because of the new profiling I would, I would think it's, it was slightly more than half. More than half. And uh, the, the most important statistic, the one I do remember pretty well, is that the opportunity for kids to see advertising that related to those products has gone down by about 40%. And obviously we can talk about whether that's an adequate kind of response, but you do see in a very strange way um, some kids' cereals that, that would not have made it through the profile being advertised at very odd times on both terrestrial TV and cable and, and Sky channels and so on. So it's had a, a very interesting effect. One, one of the issues um, in thinking about this in the United States is that the industry, the food industry, has um, argued for the ability to, be, to self-regulate. That is, the government doesn't need to get in and tell us what we should do. We will police ourselves. And one of the particular pledges they've made is to say that uh, we won't advertise um, products that aren't better for you products to children. Mm. But there are two gaping loopholes in this. One is that the industry decides what's a better for you food. And they can, in some cases, set very lax standards, so almost all their foods meet the standard. But the other, the other way the, the system um, is subverted is by industry defining what is children's media, children's television in particular, where they'll say that what, what is, what's defined as children's television is when the percentage of the audience is more than X percent, like 50 percent children under a certain age. But in fact, a relatively small amount of the media that children see is media specifically designed for them. Mm-hmm. And so industry can say they're cutting back in those arenas, but still have as much marketing exposure to children as they ever did, because that only rules out a small amount. In the UK with this, what defines children's marketing? What defines children's media? Yeah, the, the advertising standards authorities are pretty clear on, on what they would, con- would view as, as uh, children's content first. So it's quite often about content. It's also about the time window that uh, kids are supposed or not supposed to be watching TV. But I think we are talking about a redundant set of definitions. Um, increasingly, I mean, my kids are a bit older now, but increasingly, as I talk to my siblings who've got younger children, there are opportunities to see marketing from companies who are banned from advertising on TV, say some of the cereal manufacturers, has changed dramatically in the last five or six years. So we, from the UK point of view, know we need to catch up. And why do we know we need to do that? It's because sales of the products that are banned from advertising during those prescriptive hours are still going up. 
So something's going on. Marketing uh, dollars and pounds are being shifted into other areas which are not controlled by the advertising standards authorities. And so using against the kind of science base of how we would view um, products which have got inappropriate amounts of sugar and salt in them, using our standards, we will give advice to government on the next stage of a campaign to ensure that those marketing activities are restricted in exactly the same way as we all intended, including some of the manufacturers, would happen with the TV ban. And the idea of, of industry self-regulating this area is, would not catch on terribly well in the UK simply because we found it possible with a sensible and collaborative industry to reach a consensus about what constitutes kind of the, the right amounts of, of nutrients for children and therefore what could be advertised. There are clearly people who don't like this, but once you reach a consensus, then the, 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 the resistance sort of starts to melt away. So if I was saying anything in terms of advice, it would be try and find a nutritional consensus that is coming from a science and evidence base and not from any, any manufacturing group. Could it be that the reason industry was willing to agree to these standards is that they knew what you later observed, that despite the ban, they would be able to market in ways that would increase sales of the products you'd like to see people eating less of? I don't like to sound weak, but having been a food marketeer, as soon as the a government agency makes a recommendation, there are a team of expert guys and, and women out there whose sole aim is to get around it. Um, because what they're being paid to do is to market products which improve sales and give shareholder value. They're not being paid to do what we want to do, which is to kind of improve the, the health of kids by feeding them better foods. So we know we're in kind of a, a skirmish which turns into a battle, which turns into a war, but each of those elements is kind of something that we think we've got something to add. But staying ahead with the resources that governments have is pretty tricky, so you've got to be smart about it. One uh, proposal that's been made um, by some academics in the U.S. is that if you try to get uh, the nutrition landscape to change by regula regulating industry behavior like marketing practices, you're doomed to be thwarted because of the teams that go to work to find a way around the regulations. And industry is usually capable of doing that. Mm. And in the case of the U.S., you could stop one sort of marketing plan, but with all the digital technology, the industry can quickly come up with others. And by the time you study that, they're on to the next development, and you're sort of fighting a losing battle. So the recommendation has been made for what's called performance-based um, regulations. And there's a a um, law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, Stephen Sugarman, by the way, we've recorded a podcast with him that's in our library, um, who has made the recommendation that performance standards is what should be regulated. So instead of regulating specific marketing practices, you could say that by a certain date, the industry has to sell 15% less foods that are a, below a nutrition line and 15% more foods that are above a nutrition line. In the second year, it would be 30%. The next year, 50 You know, you get the picture. Sure. Yeah. And so the industry then has to figure out how to meet those performance-based standards rather than us trying to outguess the industry about how to reach those goals. Does that ring true in any way to you? I, I think that the best gatekeeper for British consumers are the the UK's retailers, the top five, are remarkably and consistently on the side of, of health. So they 
have a, I think they obviously see a competitive advantage of being able to make good claims for their ranges of foodstuffs. Our sense is that um, there is a mood in the United Kingdom which is towards healthier products and uh, a growing recognition that obesity and overweight is a, is a significant problem, but which is the individual's responsibility and also those people who market foods to them. I'm not against the performance objectives that you're talking about in per se, but I just hope, and it is still a hope, that it's going to be possible for us to, without using regulation, by using commitments and consensus and I suppose what we would call good old-fashioned common sense, that we'd have manufacturers and retailers acting in concert to reduce the, the incidence of obesity and overweight caused by the dietary component, because we haven't spoken about exercise. Um, do I believe that some of the big branded manufacturers, that particularly the multinationals, share those objectives? No, I don't, um, having worked for more than one. And my, sen my sense is that they will have to be taken to task largely by their customers, the retailers. And I would, I would think that stands a good chance in the United Kingdom, um, probably better than a regulatory uh, way that we might uh, take, whether it were your, your newer method, which I have, find some attraction in, or simply just sort of banning foods from advertising and marketing. Uh, that's the other way you could go. But I, I guess removing some of these products from the market would be our ultimate objective. Well, thank you. You have a most interesting perspective, um, being the chief executive of the, the agency, but also having the history in the food industry yourself. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Thank you. Our guest today was Tim Smith, chief executive of the Food Standards Agency in the United Kingdom. Uh, please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a, a list and a library of other excellent podcasts that we've recorded and a number of other resources related to obesity and food policy. Thank you.